Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the Adult Sunday School. We thank you for this joyful time that we have to study your word. And we pray that you may help us to understand your word in Mark 11 and 12 today. And may we be also using our spiritual gifts, all of us, as you would have us, to encourage each other and to grow. And uh, we pray that uh, you may help us to bear fruit for Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so the title of this teaching today is The Cost of Refusing to Live for Jesus. The Cost of Refusing to Live for Jesus. So that's not a sermon that I'm going to be uh, um, doing today. It's a teaching, and I want it to be participative. So I want you to use your spiritual gifts and, and talk and ask questions and, and share the insights that you might have. And um, therefore, we would get to know each other. We would be engaged. We would rem remember better. And uh, I think it would be more profitable. So the main applications are going to be the following. If you refuse to obey the Bible and to live for Jesus, he will not speak clearly to you anymore. You will become hard-hearted and you will eventually be cast into hell and crushed by the judgment power of Jesus. That's what the text is going to teach us. Of course, we will see the flip side, which is that if you bear fruit for Jesus, you'll be in his kingdom and you will be blessed. But the main emphasis of the passage is going to be those who refuse Jesus and will see the cost. But you'll see the passage is really colorful. There will be so many wonderful things to meditate upon. And so let's get started. The first part will be Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through the end. And uh, this is going to be when Jesus and his authority, when Jesus' authority is challenged. The second part is, is Mark chapter 12. And we will see the so-called parable of the vineyard or the tenants. So we'll see a parable and what that really uh, tells us. So let's start with the first part. And... Uh, we begin to read in Mark 11, verse 27 and following. And they came again to Jerusalem. So that's Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they discussed, they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then in Mark 12 verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. So you pictured the scene, I hope. Jesus is teaching and then they come that is the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they come and they ask him a question. So I have a question for you. 
Was it polite for the Pharisees to speak as they did to Jesus and why? <clears throat> so when I ask a question like this, the goal is for you to observe the text. If you don't observe the text, you get no benefits or low benefits. It's always when we observe the text, we just put our nose in the book and we try to see the details. This is always when we do this that we reap the maximum amount of benefits. And of course, it's going to help you in your own Bible reading. So look at the text and um, perhaps you know other things that are correlated to this text. And so what do you think? I think it's hard uh, to say Okay. Because it could be a valid question. Right, right. We kind of know the background. We know they're probably being. Yeah. That's true. So we don't know the tone. It's always hard to exactly see what was going on, and uh, uh, but then we know them. Um, so good points. But the question is like, what are the things they are talking about? Because these things. So maybe we should go, go back. I don't know, because he says that he came to Jerusalem, he was walking. So he was not doing anything else, not what's reading the text, but he says, they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? So All right. I thought he was teaching, but it's not written that he was teaching. Okay, good point. So, and I'll, I'll get ahead of myself a little bit. Whenever we have a, a parable or a passage in the Gospels, we want to see, is there another Gospel? There are four Gospel writers that is talking about the same story and we can jump there and take a look and see if there are details that may not be mentioned here that would enlighten us. And once you do that, uh, let's take a look actually at this. In Luke 20, <coughs> verse 1, and we'll do a lot of uh, reading today. That's going to be really helping us to see what the, all that Jesus is teaching here, uh, what he means. So Luke 20, verse 1, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, and, and so on. So when you read the, the different accounts, you basically get this picture. Jesus is actually walking in the temple. So remember, when Pastor Grady had uh, drawn the temple, the temple is actually very, very large. It's humongous. It's like the size of... A, of tens of uh, football fields, it's humongous. But the temple is composed of different uh, parts. There is the, the actual temple that we pictured with the stones and the entry and so on. But then there are different uh, um, sub-parts. And the overall temple is huge and there are many places where people walk and there are colonnades. And so he's walking and, uh, and then the text says over here, he's teaching and he's preaching the gospel. So it was typical of the, the Greeks at the time and, and the, the philosophers and some different teachers, they would walk and they would teach. So people, you know, people today, they do prayer walks. So it was like teaching walk in this case. And so he's walking and people are following him. So it's very popular and they are following him and he's teaching as he goes and he's teaching and he's preaching the gospel. And they come and they say, who gave you the right to teach? Who gave you the right to clean the temple? So is it polite? Imagine someone you know, enters the room and starts to ask a question that has nothing to do with what I'm saying. It's very disrespectful, isn't it? It's fine to ask questions, but it's not polite to ask a question that disrupts everything that's going on. Right? And of course, to challenge who gave you the right to teach anyways. So you can see that they are up to no good. And, um, and yet Jesus is kind enough to respond to them and start to tell them things. Um, so another question. Look at uh, what Jesus says in verse 30. 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? So here's the question. Did you know that some water baptisms done today are not coming from God? Look at the text. So he's saying John was baptizing. Was that something that God wanted or just men wanted? Right? So that implies that it's possible that people are baptized, but it's not the will of God. It's not done by the sanction of God. It's not authorized by God. It's interesting, isn't it? So we don't really observe the text that much, and we miss some of the key things. And so we, we can't spend too much time on this today, but I will just highlight that it would be great for us to study the, the word baptism and baptized, you know, the different words that are related through the New Testament, and then see, you know, observe. Who did it? How was it done? Who was baptized? Track it down so you can see. Is that a baptism from men or is that a baptism from God? Right? Um, so, <clears throat> what kinds of uh, baptisms done today are not coming from God? Infant baptism. Infant baptism. You'll just not find it in the, in the Bible. It's just not found. Um, and we can, it can become a little bit controversial to, to talk about those things, so we'll just be brief here. Well, but yeah, I got a question about that. So then, is R.C. Sproul a false teacher? I think it's very clear that each and every one of us have a lot of uh, doctrinal mistakes and misunderstandings, and we're all uh, trying to improve and to grow. We all have changed in many ways from the day we became Christians. And, uh, I, don't, I don't know that that is genuinely fair because you're saying it's just if you simple study of the New Testament, you will find that infants can't be baptized. Yet this man teaches infants can be baptized. So I would say be bold and say he's a false teacher because it's... I think there's a difference between, between something that's a false doctrine, that's an error, and someone who's a false teacher. So false teacher in 2 Peter uh, 2 and 3, it says that they are, they are teaching destructive heresies. So heresy is something that brings you out of the kingdom. It's just so wrong that it's foundational to the core of like who Jesus is, how we are saved. Baptism doesn't save anyone. So then, of course, that's not a, that's not a heresy to teach infant baptism. So I would never say that Sproul was a false teacher. I would say that this was an error. I would say we all have errors, so we should, we should all be humble. And then back to what I'm trying to say, we should all just go back to the text track it down and try to see for ourselves, you know, what is it that God sanctions as baptism? And I, I'll give another one that I'm sure on this case we should all agree with, with this one. When Jesus said we should, uh, that uh, baptism should be made, he said, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, i.e. a Trinitarian baptism. And there are many groups today who deny the Trinity. They, they deny that Jesus is God. And uh, they, they actually teach a false gospel like the Mormons. There are many of, of them. Uh, in, uh, in town, the, they call themselves the, the, the Latter-day Saints, so the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. It's, it's not a, a Christian group, it's, it's, a false, um, it's, a, it's a false church. And therefore, if someone is baptized in such a group, that's not coming uh, from God. Can I add something? Yeah. Uh, just like, if we look at in the Bible, there are apostles like Peter who are uh, in error. Like, for example, some apostles were teaching the circumcision. And then they had to have a council to teach that the circumcision shouldn't be uh, 
put a, as a law on the on the new converted, you know. So this is an error, but they were they false teachers? No, they were not false teachers. Yeah, uh, I'm just saying that the, I would fall into the camp if you told me to go sit and study. I would I would say I'm still a little bit uncertain that infants can't be baptized um, <coughs> based on the text. So I'm going to take a more cautious thing, and I just feel like you're saying you can easily see that infants can't be baptized, and I would say I don't think a lot of Presbyterians see that, and I think the faithful Christians that have really spent the text and could easily be corrected by the scripture because it's completed, go back and look, but I don't think they come to that conclusion. And um, I just I just don't like when it's, it's worded that way, like go back and look at the text, because I, I feel like I do, and I'm remaining a little more cautious about Right, right. People to have that opinion from the text. Of course, the reason why they believe that is because of the theological system that says that baptism is the heir of circumcision. Circumcision was done for the boys, and therefore we should baptize. You know, but but if you look at the examples of baptism, you'll never see explicitly stated and uh, baptized infants. And well, so yeah, there is that. But we we can't discuss yeah. too much about this. But the oh, point okay. is, we should study. And, uh, and go back to the text, the each right and every one of us, and then really uh, find I, I out. Agree. I just don't think it's right. to make that assumption. And that's fine, it's, it's, actually, it's actually what happens, right? When we all agree that the Bible is the, the authority, and then that every scripture is going to govern what we believe, then we, we still have people who come to different conclusions. And the good news is that we can all go back to the text and then study it for ourselves and discuss together with the same standard. So. Uh, definitely, uh, this is still profitable. There's the baptism of the dead as well. That comes from men. Right, right. Okay, so let's look at the uh, next question. So, first of all, what is the answer to Jesus' question to the Pharisees? Another question. Right, and what was the answer to that second question? Was the baptism of John coming from men or from heaven? What's the answer? Heaven. Huh? No, we do not know. We don't know. Huh? It was from, from heaven, it was from God. Of course, John was sanctioned by God. He was sent by God. He even quotes the Old Testament to say, I'm sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. So, of course, it came from heaven. It was not John who decided, John the Baptist, and say, I'm going to do this, and God just didn't approve that. Of course, God approved it. It was from heaven. So, then, with that being the case, what does that mean in regards to the Pharisees? They have to accept it as valid. And if they had accepted it as valid, what would have been the conclusion? They would have been baptized. Let's get deeper. All the things we might think about that. What did it signify? What else would that imply? Here we go. Because John said in John 1 29, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said, The one who comes after me is greater than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he clearly said that Jesus was the Messiah. And so, therefore, if they had accepted the baptism of John as coming from God and they had followed what the prophet was saying, they would not come to Jesus and say, Who, who gave you the authority to do this? Right? They will say, this is the Messiah. 
and we bow to him and we live for him we submit to his authority his authority and we listen to his teaching and his gospel we don't come and interrupt the teaching uh, and challenge him see so then the next question is what do you observe that they are doing with the question that Jesus sends them? They don't care about the right answer. They just want Here we go, big time. They don't care about the right answer. And so what do they care about? Trapping. Trapping. Just to make a mistake. Listen, they care about the consequences of the idea insofar as it can it's it will hurt them it will displease them does that ring a bell can you see that in the unbelieving world can you flash a couple of examples very briefly so here is what happens he asks the question and the truth is they know the answer how do they know they actually earlier in the gospels we see that they send people to investigate what is john doing and then later on they even come themselves and we'll see it later he actually rebukes them and they are rejected so they know it comes from the old testament it's a prophecy he's godly man he's there's nothing they can say he's not eating with the people of uh, disrepute he's not doing any of that he has he's blameless and they come they know they know he's from god there's no doubt in the world they know but they say we don't know and so you look at what they do they think if we say this it's gonna give us trouble if we say the reverse we're gonna get trouble as well so let's just pretend we don't know so can you picture people who are not Christians and then we'll look at ourselves when they have a particular matter of Christian living or uh, living in, in the world some ethical topics whatever it might be can you picture that they don't really want to think about the right answer they, they see that either way they lose so they just pretend to just not even think about it gender homosexuality yeah I mean there's no justification for people saying uh, I was uh, born uh, a male and then now I'm gonna say I'm a female this, this thing is completely bogus like everything about science everything we know everything that people have known for for thousands of years you know just testifies that this is just completely false and people what do they you talk about biology to people who say that they, they don't want to really think about it because if you start to think about it well the answer is obvious but the answer is going to trouble them in regards to what they really want to do so they just ignore it same could be said for, for, for creation. You know, people say, well, we come from monkeys. And, and then, then you ask, well, who made the monkey? Mm -hmm. Well, let's not talk about that. We don't know. The Bible says we all know from our, from our birth and our conscience, God has placed eternity in our heart. We all know God made everything. There's no way on earth. This is just so marvelous. We are fearfully, wonderfully made. We see the glory of God in the stars. We all know God made it. But people want to argue about something else. They don't want to think about this question because either way, they lose. But we shouldn't be like that. We should just see, think and, and desire. I want to know the truth. I want to know the Messiah. And if this is the Messiah, then 
I'm going to follow the Messiah. I'm not going to say, well, you know, people are going to be upset at me in my family or, you know, fearing the people rather than fearing God. That's what they do. For Christians, it's the same way. So many times we read the Bible and then we see a text or a passage or whatever it may be. And then we kind of immediately know, like, what that implies. That it implies I'm wrong about this. So we just forget about this text. Let's just, let's keep reading. Isn't that what we do? I mean, I've done it myself many times. And then actually, when, whenever that happens, I'm like, wow, I should actually go back and look at that text. That I see what it means and I'm like, this is just opposite to what I believe. How can this text say that? I should go back to that text and study it. Because if I actually get the right answer on that text and I see this is what it says, it possibly can help me understand many other things in the proper way. But if I just decide to bypass that and just say, I don't know, and don't study it, don't try, I hinder my growth. Does that make sense? I think also like some Christians, it's not, they don't even think they lose either way. It's just like they don't want to know the answer. Um, so that's kind of like, I say that because sometimes I'm kind of lazy on going deep into a, a passage and like, okay, what, like, First, uh, Hebrew one, I think Hebrew chapter one, where he talks about Melchizedek, he was a prince of peace, and was he Jesus? Was he not Jesus? That's kind of like a passage that bothers me because I cannot fully comprehend it. Like, who is Melchizedek exactly? You know, so I'm kind of like, okay, I just don't want to think about that. But that's kind of like mild compared to mm -hmm. uh, evolution or um, homosexuality. But sometimes we just don't want to know right now, so we shovel it down. Uh, very you know right maybe that's more like uh, when you were saying that more knowledge based but there are some things that have to do with our attitude and the attitude of our heart like for example um if i were to be a, a, a daughter and i'm in a position of a daughter and i'm at home and my parents tell me to not do something but i want to go ahead and uh, although like maybe my, in my house uh, we know that god doesn't like lies that we need to honor mother and father, but then I go and do my own thing, although I know like, that I end up doing the opposite, then, and then I say I'm a Christian, am I really a Christian? You know what I mean? Like, with our attitude and the way that we go about life, yeah. we show whether we really like trust and believe in who God is and who Jesus is. Yeah, that's very good. So, in fact, what they do is they lie. You can see, they just play the answer like in the back, like say this and then they say well we don't know <laughs> they're just lying they have an answer they just know that it will not be to their benefit either way so they just they just punt so it tells you a lot about their leadership what they were like and the bible says like people like priests i.e we become like the people who lead us we become like the people we are uh, spending time with and so if we look at the different texts, we see the following. It says, they feared the people because they held John as a prophet. Now there is an amazing one actually in, uh, in another parallel account in the Gospels. It's in Luke 20, it says this. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. In Mark it says they were afraid, and in Luke it tells you why. They thought, the people are going to kill us with stones 
You know, this is what they did. It was part of the law to have stoning, but in specific cases, it was not like as soon as someone says something you're uh, unhappy with, you just pick up the stone and it's like over for them. It wasn't like that. But they, they thought they could be killed. And as we'll see later on, well, that's exactly what they did. That is the people, the priests for, for centuries with people who were speaking the truth. And so, uh, you know, they were genuinely afraid. Can you imagine that? So you have corrupt leaders, and then you look at the people they are supposed to lead, and they are ready to kill them, like just for something that they would say about somebody. Isn't that, isn't that insane? So you see how when someone, and, uh, and it, it speaks of the leaders here, but it's the same for us, when we just accept to lie and just not live for God and not accept the word of God, not accept the authority of God, then surely but surely you get hard, you get hardened in your heart. And this, this is patently obvious here, both with the leaders and the people. And it's, it's a warning. We should, we should open our Bible and believe what it says. And we should submit to the authority of Jesus. And if we don't, we are hardening our hearts. And, and then the next time God speaks, uh, we may be having even a harder time to understand. See that all the time. God says, true love waits. Just a paraphrase of what the Bible says, i.e., we don't have sexual relationships until we're married. That's the beauty that God has given. He gives marriage, and we ought to wait because true love waits. And then we have a family. But people just decide not to do that. They just, and then you wait, you wait, you wait. The conscience becomes so seared, then when this is taught, it's not even something that bothers them when they do it. It's just the way it works. You just know God is telling you don't do this, your parents, you just do it, do it, do it, do it over and over again. And soon enough, you don't even, you don't even blink. So we, sh we should be very careful. When we hear what Jesus says, when the Bible says, in that case, it was the prophet and, and it was really a word from God, we should follow what, what God says. If we don't, then next thing you know, you may be uh, a potential killer just like they were. So those are kind of hard words, but I mean, that's what the text shows. We want to have hearts that really bow to Jesus. And then in response to this rejection of, of him, Jesus starts to teach parables, <coughs> right? Immediately he starts to teach parables. Um, I'm looking for a brief answer here. Do you know why Jesus spoke in parables? Because those who those who would understood those who wanted under um, it was for those of course who would want to understand who would want to seek him because of what God is doing in them and therefore only only those who would want to seek him understand would know his parables. All right, exactly right. It was to sh to hide the truth from the people who didn't want to understand and reveal the truth to the disciples only. So people think like the parables were just nice stories to explain things in a, in a storytelling way. It wasn't. It was something to, all right, you don't want to receive the truth when it's plain and obvious. Now I'm going to have a parable, like a little enigma. And some people will understand, some people won't. And we see that in, um, in other passages. I will briefly read the, a couple references. In Luke 8, 9, um, it says this. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. You know that the parables are about the kingdom of God. 
But for others, they are in parables. For you, you know, for them it's in parable. You understand? The parable won't be clear for others. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then you see the concept of the heart is hardened and um, you will have more hardening and the parable comes in, in play in Matthew 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear nor understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will hear, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown, grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, and their eyes, you see now this is the, the proactive part. Their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So you see that you, you do not want to close your eyes, you, don't want, you do not want to close your ears to what God is telling you when we're studying the Bible. You want to embrace it, study it, bow. Because otherwise, we will have the judgment that God will speak to us uh, less clearly. And this is really a judgment. So Jesus starts to speak to them in parables. And uh, let's consider in the second part, the parables. So we start to read in Mark 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So I pause right here. So what's the picture here? So there is a man, he is, building a vineyard. This is to have wine and to have this, uh, this, this farmland that's really producing fruit. And he builds a tower, he builds the wine press so you can take the grapes at the harvest season and it can be put over there and crushed and so you will have the liquid. He builds all of that. We all see that? Caleb, we see that? All right. Then he goes away. But before he does that, he lists it to tenants. So he says, I, I'm no longer here to work on, on my vineyard. So I'm going to have people come. I'm going to pay them money. They will have everything they need. There is a tower to protect them, everything. And now they have to work on, in my vineyard so that um, I will reap the benefits. And we will split the, 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 the benefits, the, the profits. Uh, they are tenants. Verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him 
and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. One of the only parables that they actually understood, and they knew it was against them. So question. Um, actually, let me give a, a, a question and an answer. How can we properly interpret a parable? Maybe you can flash a couple answers. How can we properly interpret a parable? By how the, the apostles taught it. All right. Uh, so you mean the explanation of the parable? Yeah, either by Jesus or sometimes the apostles in other epistles. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the whole Bible, how does it shed light on that passage? Uh, I, I just gave away another answer is that sometimes Jesus himself will just explain what the parable is about. So we definitely want to see what it says and then uh, be consistent. Something else? This imagery of the, the vineyard is all throughout the Old Testament and Isaiah and stuff like that. So you right. can see. Yeah, there are different passages that are parallel to this uh, account. And uh, I will add, critically, that other gospel writers will mention, oftentimes, unless it's a parable that occurs only in one gospel, oftentimes they will mention other details. And we can have the full picture. I would say, actually, unless the parable is explained, you cannot really understand it. Unless the parable is explained, you cannot understand it. So imagine you have no Bible. You have never read anything about Christianity, and you get this story. There's no way you can understand what it means. It's just a story about someone who planted the vineyard and there was this terrible thing that happened, right? That's all it means. So a parable in itself does not give you direct teaching. The reason I bring this up is because sometimes people take parables and they just make up doctrines that are not in the Bible. I'll give you one. And it's not exactly a parable, but you will get the point. I guess I, I'll give you another one. There is a parable that says that there was a lady, she was asking a king to give her something, and the king was bothered, and eventually he's so bothered, he just gives, gives her what she wants. So if you just take that parable, here is what you get. If you pray to God, he's really bothered, but eventually if you just keep doing it, he's going to be like, enough to hear of this person. I'm just going to grant the answer to the prayer. But of course, that's not what the text says. The text in the context says that this is meant to teach us perseverance in, in, in prayer. It's not meant to teach us that God is like that. So how do we know? Well, because we know from the other parts of the Bible and we know from the direct context. There is also, it's not exactly a parable, but there is the uh, John 15, where it says that if someone does not bear fruit, he's gonna be cut off and thrown into hell. So some people say, see, right there, we are taught that you can lose salvation. <coughs> But this is not how it works. Because you cannot understand a parable on its own, or a symbolic passage on its own. You will understand it only through the other parts of the Bible that are going to explain to us what happened. And of course, in that case, it's also the history. The history is shading light on the parable. So the bottom line is this. The parable is going to be explained by scripture. You don't come up with a doctrine in a parable that's not in the Bible because that's not how it works. That's not how we should, we should proceed. And so that being said, we actually need to read 
the other gospel accounts because we will get critical information as far as what the parable means. But first, let me ask this question. Can you please pick one of the parts of the parables, the parable, and tell us what it means? So we are looking for the meaning of the parable of the vineyard, the parable of the tenants. So who is the man who plants the vineyard? God. That's God, God the Father. All right, who is, who are the, who is the son who is sent? Jesus. Jesus. Who are the tenants? Israel. 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 What about this uh, fence, the pit, the wine press, the tower? What is that about? So you remember the, the, the story, we, we have to piece it together. So God is the one who builds the vineyard and then he listed to Israel and eventually he sends his son. But we go back and we have the tower, we have the fence, we have all of those things. Huh? So this is when, you know, we don't have the exact details. But the picture that we get is what? There's everything that the tenants need to produce the fruit, isn't it? And so if the tenant is Israel, and we'll look at the other parables to, to figure that out in some more details, but then what was Israel given to bear fruit? What did they have? The word. They had the law, exactly. They had a lot of privileges. Romans 9, 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. See, they had all those things. They had the law to protect them from the influences of other nations. They had the tower with God and His divine protection because the tower was built so that people would be just protected inside to rest, but also they could see animals from afar and, and invaders and protect the vineyard because it took so long to actually uh, plant the, the vine and then uh, make sure that it would produce uh, great vintage fruits and you would eventually get the... the it would take years before you could actually get the wine. It would take a long time, so people would protect it. They, would just, they wouldn't just have the, the vineyard in the middle of nowhere and then any animal can come and eat it or crush it and people can come and steal. It was protected. They had all those benefits and Israel was protected. They had all those things. And, and then when God sent a servant for harvest time to Israel to say, where is my fruit? They, what did they do? What are the servants that God sent? Prophets. The prophets. And we see that he sent just one. Is that so? No. Over and over and over again, he sent servants. And what did they do? Killed them. They killed them. They mistreated them. And that's, uh, that's where the history of Israel helps us. The history of Israel, we see that, we see that prophets were, were, they were brutalized. They were, they were shamed. They were put in prison. Isaiah was sawn in two. Uh, we had others stoned like Jeremiah. We had so many prophets killed. Let me read a passage from Jesus. Actually, let's turn there. It's Matthew 23. And later on, we'll see Matthew uh, 21, where Jesus talks about this parable as well. 
Matthew 23, 37. Matthew 23, 37. And, and, and remember, this is the very same chronology. In Matthew 21, you have Jesus entering the uh, Jerusalem with a triumphal entry. Then we have the cleansing of the temple. We have the cursing of the fig tree. We have the parables. And then in Matthew 23, he actually uh, curses the Pharisees. He says seven times, woe to you, Pharisees. It's a very, very long speech. That's just uh, an indictment against them. And then in verse 37, he says this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers. I would have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her root under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see that? It's the history of the Jews. So, let's read um, the, <clears throat> the other parables. You may have noted that Mark says he began to speak to them in parables. Pro. So, Mark recalls only one, but... In Matthew 21, 22, we actually have three. And guess what? Those parables, they really have, just like in other passages, they really have the same angle in mind. They are just going to go uh, with different angles, and they're going to tell us what this is really all about. We're going to get insights in the parable of the tenants, and we're going to get two more parables that are going to tell us things that really shed light on that parable. So let's dive into it. Matthew 21, 28, and following. We'll see three parables. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and eventually the parable of the wedding feast. What's that? Where are we going? Uh, we are going to Matthew 21, 28. Uh, Rick, would you like to read for us uh, the first parable? 28 through... I'm not the ESV, is that right? What's that? I'm not the ESV, is that right? Oh, God, that's fine. Read the parable? Yeah. Well, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, My son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. Yet later, he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the others and, and uh, said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered. But he didn't go. Which of the two sons did his father's will? The first, they said. Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds and then believe him. So that's actually the first one he speaks to them when he starts to talk about uh, uh, different things in parables right after they rejected John. You see the context, he goes back to John. Isn't that amazing? First of all, we see that it's about the kingdom of God, right? He's talking about the kingdom of God multiple times. And then it's about a vineyard again. And they are all supposed to go, the two sons, in the vineyard to work for their, their father. And then, I mean, it almost made me laugh just the way he's told direct to them. Can you imagine? Like, he gives the story of the two sons. One is, they are both supposed to go to work for their dad. And one says, yes, I'll do. He doesn't do it. The other one is the opposite. He says, I don't want to do it. And then he repents and he does what his dad wants. And then, and then Jesus says, okay, which one obeyed? 
and they all get it. I remember when we, we read this story at home, everybody says, the first. So they are condemning themselves. They are saying, this is the one. And then it's just in a split second, he looks at them and he says, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitute go into the kingdom of God before you. Can you imagine that? Like imagine there's a crowd, they are the leaders, and he gives this nice uh, short story. Everybody gets to point and they even say the verse. And then he turns at them and he says, those people you despise, they enter the kingdom of God before you. It's just shocking. Almost just, you know, it's completely striking. You almost laugh as, as the irony is so deep. He doesn't even hide it. It's, they enter before you. Wow. It's just unbelievable. And what happened in, in, uh, in, um, in the case of John the Baptist? Well, people were coming to him. They were flocking. They were coming. They recognized we were sinners. We are sinners. We come to repent of our sins, to be baptized. And the text says the prostitutes, everybody was coming to him. The tax collectors, they were all going. And then they showed up. And they said they, they wanted to be baptized. And he says, you brood of vipers who had basically told you to flee the wrath of God when you're not even bearing the fruits of repentance. And then he said, I'm not going to baptize you. You should come and repent. That's the story. They were not bearing fruit. And so right there he says, you should have known what, what that meant, what John told you. So we keep reading. Second parable. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And I'll pause here and remind you that in the context, what have we seen? We've seen that Jesus, what did he do with the particular tree? He cursed the tree. What tree? Fig tree. The fig tree that represents Israel. And what? why did he curse it? Wasn't bearing fruit. Because it didn't bear fruit. He comes, you're supposed to get fruit, no fruit, cursed. So right there, the, again, the parallels, he just talked about that. He just gave this vivid picture. It's going to be rotten to the core in, 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 a few, in a few hours. And later on, the tree was completely uh, withered. And here we see again, he, come, he comes for the fruit. They have every reason to bear fruit. He comes and they don't want to have any fruit given to him. And the tenant, and we don't even know, perhaps there was nothing. Perhaps they, it wasn't that they had a lot and they wanted to keep it for, for themselves. Perhaps they were just lazy to the core, did nothing. Who knows? And the tenant took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. But the tenant saw the son. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And who answers? The Pharisees answer. Can you imagine that? Just like the first parable, the first, they said. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out of the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. By the way, I pause here. If you look at the other gospel, you'll see that. So we see the full picture here. He's telling the story. He asks the question, 
what is God going to do? And they say, he's going to kill them with a miserable death and get them out and get new people who will be having integrity. If you read the other gospel, you'll find out some people say, no, may it never be. So it's almost like this is when they, they get it, right? At the end, they perceived it was about them. But the way it unfolds, it's this. He tells the story and then he asks, so what is God supposed to do? Or what is the right thing? And they give the answer. And then as they give the answer, they get it. Oh, it's against me. God is going to put us to a miserable death. He's going to crush us. And they say, no, may it never be. So then he explains, he says, the stone that the builders rejected and the stone is Christ, the builders is them, has become the, the cornerstone. That's when Jesus is raised from the dead. He is first just the stone, the king of the Jews, and he is the cornerstone, he's the king of kings. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And by the way, what's so interesting here is that Jesus is actually through <coughs> his life, he's walking through Psalm 118. Psalm 118, you remember there's like, we read it a couple of weeks ago where, where it says, uh, save now, Lord, we pray. This, this is the Hebrew uh, rendering Hosanna. Mm -hmm. And when they enter, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. They are singing Psalm 118. This is also Psalm 118, just before. And he's saying, you remember that when I entered and I'm the Messiah and they all recognize me? You are suffering the consequences of this Psalm 118 pass part as well. And he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the cornerstone and it's marvelous in your eyes but this is what God is doing and therefore he gives the conclusion giving key insights to the parable verse 43 therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you so you see this is when uh, we get a critical insight when I started to study this parable there were kind of two views and um, the first view is that the vineyard is Israel and the second view is that, no, Israel is the tenant. And, uh, and so, <clears throat> which is it? Well, right here it tells us, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. So in the parable, they have the vineyard, they have all those benefits, uh, but then they won't bear the fruit, so it's taken away from them. So the kingdom, uh, the vineyard is the kingdom of God. You see that? The vineyard is the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom of God. The two sons, it's about the kingdom of God. Right there, it's about the kingdom of God. It's taken away from Israel. It's given to the church. And then it says this, people who will be producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken or crushed to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See the picture? That's why I entitled the study, The Cost of Refusing Jesus. And the applications are, if you don't submit to his word, to his authority, he will speak different so even less clearly to you. And then you will be crushed by his power and his judgment. So we don't want to be there. We want to just bow to Jesus and seek the truth and pursue the truth and love the truth and love Jesus Christ. We want to love him. Uh, we are almost out of time. So I'm going to be uh, cruising a little bit. But uh, the next parable that's in the text, it's the wedding feast. It's fascinating. Look at this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and other to his business. While the rest seized his servants 
treated them shamefully. See the parallels? It's really all about the same message, cast in different lights to bring different points. Treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Burned their city. So right there, this is exactly what happened to Israel. Did you know that? In 70 AD, God sent the Roman army of the emperor Titus and with his troops, he killed these murderers and he burned Jerusalem. That's what happened. It's exactly the same thing. Because they treated shamefully all that God sent to them, even his own son. Amazing. That's the parable. I mean, it's an amazing parable. This is, this is amazing. And now, look at this. We all forget that this is the glorious, beloved, wonderful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is saying this. So he's looking at them. Listen to me. He's looking at them. And he gives this parable. And he said, and he's God himself. And he says, God sent them a servant. A servant of God. He's a servant of God. Imagine you are a boss, you have an employee. You care for that employee. It's your employee. So God sent a servant and they treated him shamefully. And another one, and they killed him. And they shamed him. And then, consider the love of God for you. He sent his son. Jesus saying that, he sent his son. Thinking they're gonna respect him. They're gonna honor him. But they killed him. Jesus is saying he's gonna be killed. He's gonna be shamefully killed. He's gonna be put out of the vineyard. Jesus is saying that. You can imagine almost perhaps the tear in his eyes or the, 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 the soberness in his eyes. He sent his son and they killed him. He's speaking of his own death. Not only that, that um, he says, speaking of the urgency, finally he sent his son. This is your last offer is Christ. You know more prophets coming to tell you Christ is the son of the last one. Amen. So we don't want to be in their shoes. What was their sin before they killed the son? What was their sin? What are the parables all about? So the feast, it continues like this. He invites them. This is God inviting Israel. Come to the feast. Come to celebrate the wedding. And they're like, ah, I don't care. I have other things to do. I'm going to watch the NFL. I'm going to do X, Y, Z, you, you name it. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to come to church. I have better things to do. They don't want to come. And some are actually just fighting against what God is doing. And then he just, just get them out. They won't come to the wedding. They are going to be killed, those murderers. And then he sends people to the byways and the highways everywhere. He says, come, everyone, come from everywhere. Come, those are, this is the people from the church, the Gentiles, everywhere. Just bring them in. It says in the text. And then uh, there is one that comes and he's not having a wedding garment. And the king comes and he says, who gave you, who, how come you are here without a wedding garment? And he's cast away into hell, the text says. And then at the end, Jesus continues and says that he will be placed in the place where there are weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he concludes, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
So he's saying in that feast, where Israel is no longer there because they just decided as a, as a whole, of course, some people were, were Jews and they turned like the apostles, but as a whole, they just said, no thanks. And as a whole, he called the Gentiles. But it's not any Gentile, it's not any person who's not from Israel who can come in. You have to be, you have to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Because if he comes and you say, yes, I'm a Christian, but your life is like anybody else, you're out. You have to do what? What's the whole point of those three parables? Produce fruit. You have to produce fruit. You can't show up with something that's not worthy of the fruit of repentance. You cannot show up uh, and say, yes, God, I'll do that, but you don't go to the vineyard. You cannot be in the vineyard and then you have everything you need. You have your Bible, you have your church, you have everything you need, but you just won't follow God. You can't do that. Because many are called, but few are chosen. And so you see, this is all about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is taken away from Israel because they will not bear fruit. And we don't want to be like that. So there is a passage I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read. That's going to tell us more about that. Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that's, that's really the main application we want to take home is we want to bear fruit for God. And uh, as we close, um, I'll just mention that national ethnic Israel, and not everyone agrees with that, but I'll tell you what I believe the scripture say about that. Is national ethnic Israel out of the kingdom forever? And I believe the answer is no. They will be restored in the future according to the manifold mercy and wisdom of God. So we see that in a couple of texts. So you see, the kingdom of God was taken away from them and given to others. That, that's the church. Acts 1, 3, 6 and 7. Jesus is teaching for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And then verse 6, they come together and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He's teaching them for 40 days. He's a mighty teacher. They get the point. Israel is going to be restored to the kingdom at some point, but we don't know when. And he says, it's not to you to know the time and the seasons. And then in, in the Joel 2, there is a prophecy about the end times where it talks about um, the day of the Lord coming, verse 1. And then it says, the Lord will be jealous for his people and, and for his land and pity his people. And then in verse 22, it says, Fear not, you beasts of the field, for pastures, pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears fruit, the fig tree and vine give full their full yield. So there will be a time when the fig tree and the vine will bear fruit. And this is, remember, we read Jesus saying, You killed the prophets, you killed everyone. I will not, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know what this is? This is again Psalm 118. The end of the song. This is over for you, Israel. You reject your Messiah, it's over. But one day, until you will say, I accept my Messiah, you will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will accept the Messiah one day. 
And this is what um, this is what Romans 11 says. We are told in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In Daniel, we have also that in 9, until the consummation. In Zechariah 12, we are told that they will look on him whom they pierced and mourn for the firstborn. And then in Romans 11, and we will close on this, we have this beautiful picture. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them. I will take away their sin, their sins. And as you continue, it says that, the Gentiles will be blessed by the mercy and eventually mercy will be given to all and it concludes by all the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. So let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful passage, the parable. We pray that you may help us all not to reject Jesus, but to really bear fruit for him, for you and uh, to submit to your word, study your word humbly, to submit to your authority. And we thank you for, for the kingdom, which is your rule, your rule in this world and over salvation in that case, and how we can be born again and enter into your kingdom. And we thank you for that. Help us to contribute to the measure you have for us to have the fullness of the Gentiles to come in by evangelizing. And we thank you for, for your promises, for your people, and for this text. Thank you for sending your son, Chief of All, who died for us, and who is now the cornerstone, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Amen. Amen.